So today, uh, we have three weeks before our Advent se- uh, season begins, and these moments uh, that we have, like these little w- sort of gaps, it's, it's always a great time to be able to cover some of the more smaller, neglected books of the Bible and, and mine the riches it has for us. Um, so we're going to be spending three weeks in the book of Philemon, um, a book that is notoriously difficult to understand as it is to pronounce. So if you're ever wondering how to pronounce this, technically in the Greek, it's Philemon, right? But don't worry, I'm going to probably say Philemon or Philemon or whatever during this whole time. But don't worry if you can't get this correctly, all right? But Philemon is technically the correct pronunciation. Um, and we're going to cover who is this guy? Why does Paul write to him? Why is this short little small letter in our Bibles? And, and more, you know, perhaps more importantly, what, what does it mean for the church and its mission to spread the gospel of Christ? So, uh, though this letter is incredibly short, Paul is deeply intentional about his words here, as we'll discover in the weeks to come. He, he doesn't want to waste any space advocating to Philemon to forgive someone who has wronged him. Um, and that's his former slave, Onesimus. And Paul has to be incredibly careful here because uh, huge stakes are on the line. Uh, have you ever tried to say incredibly difficult things to someone who may not have to hear what you want to say? Maybe someone in a high position or a power of authority. Uh, what what makes that conversation so difficult? Um, it, it's what makes it difficult. I think is that they have the power not only to be offended by what you're talking about, but also the power to reject you completely. And so now let's up the ante here. What if your request had the life of another person on the line? How much more careful would you be with your words? You see, this is the tension. This is the battle of of Paul here in this letter. And ultimately what we will see is is Paul is advocating for the central theme, the the, the theme that sort of will tie our entire time over these next three weeks, and that, that is this, that the gospel restores our fellowship with others. That the gospel restores our fellowship with others. Now, normally when we talk about the gospel, we speak of this true reality that we are restored in our fellowship with God, and that is good and necessary. We need to sing about the things that, 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 we, that we just sang about. But the reality surrounding our lives is that the gospel also opens our eyes to see others differently. That the gospel restores our fellowship with others precisely because we have been made right with God again. So this week we're going to take a look at verses 1 to 7, as Victoria just read for us. And Paul wants to make it clear how the gospel restores our fellowship because of two foundations. And these are the the two main points of today. That one, uh, Christ gives us true peace. And two, Christ gives us true faith. So one, Christ gives us true peace and Christ gives us true faith. So look at verse one again, discussing true peace. If if we could have it up there, Josiah. Um, If you have ever spent any amount of time in Paul's epistles in the New Testament, verse 1 should actually be a bit of a shocker. Did you catch what's kind of shocking about verse 1? Um, in all, almost all of his other epistles, Paul starts off by, by stating what? That he is an apostle. Apostle. 
he starts right off the bat saying, I am an apostle. I am speaking to you with authority. I am speaking to you from this position that I am God's herald. But this one, very uniquely, he starts out by saying that he is a prisoner. And that should strike us here because what, what's happening is that he is saying, he's communicating, I, I don't want to assert the authority and the power that I could in this situation. Rather, I want to appeal to you, Philemon, from a position of humility rather than a position of strength. Now, why is that? Because the gospel changes our posture when we approach one another, and especially in difficult situations. Um, so, uh, in the professional world of competitive video games, uh, which I was a part of for, for two years, um, I got sponsored by a burger company, which is now like no longer in Colombia. It's a long story. Um, everyone who competes has a gamer tag. Okay, and so this is sort of this name you give yourself entering into this tournament. So you are no longer, you know, like John Song. You are Cali Burger DCB J Song, right? And so this sort of transformation happens, right, when you become when you get a gamer tag, and 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 all of them have like incredibly like flashy and very like intimidating names, you know, like Kairos Time, like TGH, PZ Boy. And I remember there's this one time where I got the opportunity to play against the Evolution World Champion, which is sort of like the, the Super Bowl of my sport, right? Or the, or I, don't, I know some of you athletes will be offended I just call it a sport, but that's okay, right? right? The Super Bowl, right, of the game that I was playing. I got to play Cane Blue River, okay? Now, what images are invoked when you say you are fighting against Cane Blue River, Right? scary, right? This rushing torrent of water that's going to defeat you, right? And he's actually, like, I knew this guy in person. He was actually, like, the kindest Chilean guy you would ever meet, right? Like, the most innocent guy who was known to be one of the kindest person, right, to teach you things about the game. But in that match that I was with him, he was no longer Nico. He was Kane Blue River, evolution world champion. So how do you think that changed the way I related to him? Right? I had no reason to be afraid of Nico, but Cane Blue River, I was like terrified. Right? And so after I inevitably lost the match, Nico comes up to me and he shakes my hand and he tells me, hey, you've got a lot of potential. Right? Which is, right? It was sort of a nice way of saying, like, good try. Right? And he gives me this big hug and suddenly our relationship is incredibly different again. Right? Now, how does that happen? It's because of how the transformation of the name and the context of the relationship changed. So instantly, Philemon is drawn to see Paul, not as the apostle that converted him in Colossae, not the apostle who had all this authority you know, for the gospel, but, but ra rather as a prisoner sitting in chains. And there's an immediate soberness that comes along with just beginning... The, with this letter from Paul that you would expect him to speak as an apostle, and he's, he's saying that he's a prisoner. And so, he wishes for Philemon uh, to experience grace and peace that can only come from Christ in a difficult situation. That he isn't coming to him from a position of strength. Now, who is Philemon? And I know I'm, I'm even bouncing between names right now, and so this is, this is hard for me, but who is Philemon? Here's what we know about him. 
Uh, he was most likely a very successful businessman in the port city of Colossae, which means that he was also a man of considerable status in his community. We, we know that he owned multiple bond servants, uh, what the ESV translates into bond service, or, or sort of our understanding of slaves, but it's not, nothing like American slavery, um, which despite the moral problems that slavery creates for his newly found Christian faith, it means that socially he was probably very incredibly wealthy, um, at least in the upper two-thirds of wealth. The bond servant industry back in biblical times accounted for about one-third of all people in the workforce during the time of the Roman Empire. Um, so by all accounts, all right, there's, there's, there should have been no way that a man of his position, a man of his status, a man with a house that was apparently big enough to host a church, uh, no way that receiving the gospel would be a benefit to him at all. To be a Christian in that era meant that socially you were not following the secular polytheistic order of the day. It meant economically you weren't involved in the, the trade of pagan god sacrifices, which in turn was a part of the huge part of the economy back then. Um, and to be a Christian meant that you were in danger, by the way, of real persecution. Because you were in danger of being misunderstood as an enemy of the state. But Christ enters his life in a dynamic way. And by all accounts here, uh, Philemon embraced the true peace that comes from following Christ. Him, his, uh, most scholars believe uh, Aphia is his wife. This is in verse 2. And Archippus, who they believe to be Philemon's son, all of them are committing their family to living out a reality that's the only path of true peace. The only grace that they could receive is from the one that comes from Christ. And so it leads him to open up his home to the church, to the stranger, to the foreigner, which is a dangerous prospect in any era, but especially in his time, and gave generously for the church in Colossae to thrive there. So, you know, let's just pause here and ask ourselves this question. Uh, what would lead a person to do this? Why would anyone sacrifice and give so much? The answer is obvious and is worth for Paul to to restate to him in verse 3 that he encounters the true grace and peace that only comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It allows us to engage the world that we live in without fear of how others will respond around us. It gives us a certain kind of courage to face the loss that will come socially, economically, cultural capital in the world around us because of living out the certainty of the gospel we received. So so what about you? Um, are you walking in the peace of knowing that because you have received Christ, um, really anything that you lose in this world is, is nothing to you? What are you holding on to? Right? What are you scared of? especially with Tuesday looming around the corner, right? You know, I was listening to uh, the Good Faith podcast. Uh, This is uh, Curtis Chang and David French. Um, And this is a podcast which sort of touches on the cultural issues of the day and how to respond to them in light of the gospel. And and on one episode, they actually had uh, the professor of finance at Yale University, and his name is James Choi, um, who, upon receiving this, this very prominent faculty position at Yale, uh, 
promptly on his Yale University bio put a link on the on, of a website where he posts on why he is a Christian. The podcast questioners were sort of amazed by this fact that you were just appointed to this really prominent faculty position, one of the one of the most influential secular, secular institutions in the world today. Why would you risk it by now linking on your website, on, on the Yale University website, on why you are a Christian? I mean, you haven't even made tenure yet, right? Like, why would you do that? Wouldn't it be divisive? Couldn't you just be, you know, a Christian who sort of floats under the radar and just do very good work? And his response was was not only great in how he responded to the question, but but also, if you listen, the the, the very sort of almost matter-of-a-fact, peaceful way that he he says what he says. He says this. Choi says, uh, you know, it felt wrong to believe that now that I have this position that I should go undercover. You know, in the early days, there is this conviction that he received that, that I should live out loud and not be ashamed for my faith. So you can't say, I'm going to do that later on when I'm established. I I wanted to share how a belief in Christianity was actually a pretty rational thing to believe in. See, once you realize that Christ has given you a peace that the world can't take away, uh, you start understanding more and more about what Jesus himself has done for us to demonstrate this peace in his life. This is the Jesus who doesn't allow the fear of the crowd to persuade him. But rather, in peace, Jesus has compassion on the crowds. This is a Jesus that doesn't allow the social pressure of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their status to overwhelm him, but but he responds in such a way that speaks truth in very difficult situations at the loss of social and human capital. Even when Jesus is on the cross, dying for our sins, knowing that he will be resurrected on the third day. This is a Jesus, though, in the experience of intense physical pain and emotional suffering and spiritual wrath that is being poured out upon him, um, the mocking, the jeering. He, he offers peace to a penitent thief. He gives his disciple John a new family. And he goes to the crowd and he prays for them. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When we consider the peace that Christ has experienced in this life, we begin to live it out in our words, our actions. This community, this church together, not being driven by the fear and the pressure pressure and the inertia of the world, the flesh and the devil, but something much more powerful, and that is the peace of Christ. So do you have that today? So even though that there is a problem for Philemon that Paul is advocating to correct, and, and we'll get to this problem that Paul is trying to address next week, um, he starts off in verse 4 by highlighting all the good that the gospel has done in the work of Philemon's life. Paul begins his exhortation not with the law, but grace. And, you know, this is going to be actually very instructive for us, particularly maybe in conversations that you'll have this week about people that you have uh, to say very hard things to or maybe even disagree with. Um, Our tendency is to respond first with the law. But Paul here in these three verses in 4 to 7, he's responding with grace. And so that leads us to our second point here today, by the way, that that Christ gives us true faith. Uh, Look at verse 6. 
And verse 6 speaks of Paul's hope for Philemon, that, that the sharing of Philemon's faith, if we can have that up there, the sharing of Philemon's faith may be effect, become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing. This is a very notoriously hard verse to, to, to wrestle with and, and grasp. I mean, what is being said here? We need to kind of stop and pause. What, what is being communicated? Okay, now, normally I, I, I hate it. Well, I shouldn't say hate. I, I strongly dislike it when uh, pastors use Greek in preaching. Um, because, uh, honestly, um, a lot of other times when pastors are using Greek, they're, they're using it to create a distance between them and their congregations. And also because the translations that you have in front of you are, are vetted by godly scholars who know more Greek in their little finger than, than most pastors ever would. Okay, So you can trust your Bibles. Uh, but, having said all that, here I think there is a word that we should examine that's really important to examine. And that word here is the word for sharing in verse 6. And that word is a word that maybe some of you may be familiar with here, and that's the word koinonia. So, it's more than a sense of sharing that goes beyond of, of telling someone what you believe. All right, it's, it's sharing here is koinonia. It's, it's a word where you're in the trenches together. You're sharing life. You're, you're sharing your struggles. You're sharing table fellowship. Uh, for Paul, in other words, the Christ that brings true faith is, is bringing a faith that is never just talking about an experience of God. True faith is, is communion with fellow believers in a way that establishes a faith that is actually effective. That the, the koinonia of your faith will bring a full knowledge, right? Not just here or here, but both. The true understanding of what, what is good when we do this together in church community. So, anytime you gather with a, a church friend or neighbor for a lunch or sharing dinner together in your home, or going on a hike, praying with a dear brother. Um, we are koinonia-ing together in a way that's making our faith more truer and more effective than we could ever experience. So let's pause, stop and pause and think a little bit about how this koinonia plays itself out, even in the uniqueness that Paul is writing to this letter to Philemon. Um, again, a very notable fact for, for those of you who, who, who want to know more about the uniqueness of this letter. Um, this is the only letter that Paul writes in his entire collection that's actually personally addressed to an individual. You see, First uh, and Second Timothy were actually written to the church, and then you have all those epistles that were written to broader churches, right? And even though he addresses Epiphia and Archippus and the church that meets in his home, all of the second person uh, uh, forms here are singular. He's writing directly to Philemon. Right? He doesn't address broader church issues here. So Paul is his most intimate and personal self with Philemon about what it means to live out true faith because he has koinonia with him in this way. So even though this letter would have been read out loud in the church in front of his wife, his son, right? Uh, it would have been something that would then, there's this sort of communal aspect around it, but it's addressed to him personally. And so that speaks to us, by the way, about another point about koinonia, and that is that true faith that Christ brings is never an individual endeavor. Right? Neither 
And if what Paul is saying here is true, neither can the gospel restore our fellowship outside of the bounds of communion together. This is like super important. You all need koinonia with one another. It's the truest example of faith that we have to a watching world. We need it lived out and breathed out by us, City of Hope. Not just when we've got it all together, but especially, especially when we're broken and we're messed up. You see, the danger of this sort of phrase that is out right now is just, you know, it's just sort of me and my relationship with God. Or, you know, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, or I don't need the church. That's actually not a gospel phrase at all. We need each other. Now, notice something that in here, by the way, that we may need to correct from the overcorrection that uh, that happens in sometimes in, in fringe sort of gospel-centric movements. Um, it, it, you know, I love gospel-centric movements. I love what this phrase that has come out of it, which is so important for us to, to remind ourselves with, and that is this phrase, uh, just preach the gospel, but... But, and, and please don't misunderstand me here, what happens sometimes in sort of very extreme interpretations of this is that it becomes assumed that any exhortation for the church to live this out in the spheres of our work, of our families, our social ethics, our politics, right, is somehow theological compromise. And that is flatly untrue. Okay, Just preach the gospel is a call to koinonia. And the fellowship of the gospel, that includes every part of our lives, both individually and corporately. Otherwise, as Paul writes, we wouldn't have access to the full knowledge of every good thing. And unfortunately, what, I, what we've seen in this movement is that the just preach the gospel movement has become associated with the very worst things that we hate about religion. What I like to call the telling of the greatest news in the entire world that doesn't actually change anything about your life. If just preach the gospel doesn't give you greater compassion for the lost or a non-Christian, if it doesn't change the way that you view materialism, if it doesn't change the call to be sacrificial, if it doesn't tell you how to be thoughtful about how the intersection of our faith and the other aspects of life that we deal on a daily basis are transformed by God's grace, if it doesn't change what we think about family, work, politics, art, music, and more, if it doesn't call you to be a peacemaker or be reconciled with your neighbor, just preach the gospel is no gospel at all. So, this is obvious, by the way, all right, just so that you know, that I'm not making this up from Scripture. Uh, when you look at the totality of Scripture, Scripture has always been indicative, imperative, faith and works, loving God with your mind, your heart, your soul, and your strength. And where do we see the clearest picture of this? The Word who becomes flesh and dwells among us. You know, the famous theologian Abraham Kuyper, famous neo-Calvinist, very influential uh, in the Presbyterian faith, said there's not a square inch in the whole domain of the human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all things, does not cry, mine. True faith is never divorced from the full knowledge, the full experience that comes from a quinonia life. And this is one part on how the gospel fixes and restores our fellowship with others. 
It calls us to look to Jesus as the true giver of peace. It calls us to look to Jesus as our true faith. The Christ who took on flesh, incarnational with us, who koinonia with his people, who experienced their pain, who listened to their cries, and ultimately showed us through his words and his life how peace could be given. Through trusting in him for a salvation that gives us a community. This community that no trial could ever take away. And so Paul ends his greeting section here to Philemon and the church, that Christ is our true peace and our true and living faith. And I want to be say, notice Paul's encouragement. Though he's about to say some very hard and difficult things to Philemon later on, notice Paul's encouragement to his brother. And how we can be encouraged in seeing in each other's lives a real and dynamic peace. To see all of our elders here at City of Hope who have been serving and sacrificially loving this church well during a very difficult period. To see our deacons and deacon assistants caring for the needs of our community even when there's misunderstanding and hardship. To see all of you who volunteer your time sacrificially even with the demands of work and family and schedules. I've been so encouraged by all of your faith. And so I'm excited to be with you all and to serve with you along together in a way that we model this true peace and this true faith that Christ is giving to us. So let's pray together in light of that. Let's be encouraged by him.